the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you all on this last Sunday of Epiphany. For those of you watching online, it's so good to have you with us this morning. We've journeyed with Jesus as He has been revealed to us through all of our readings through the season. He's been revealed to the world. The transfiguration of Jesus on this day, as we just read earlier, is the culmination of this Epiphany season. Jesus' ministry started all the way back with his baptism in the River Jordan. And you remember what happened then in the baptism? A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And that launched Jesus into his ministry, into the world. The work of revealing himself of this epiphany season. And as we fast forward now to the transfiguration, we get this same voice from heaven. But this time it wasn't to Jesus himself. It was actually to the disciples who were there with him. It's the voice from heaven said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus' identity is being further revealed here to the disciples. If you want to know who Jesus is, this is it. Jesus is revealed here in Luke 9 to be the very Son of God, the Messiah, standing beside Moses and Elijah in all of his glory and radiance shining out into the world. This echoes our Old Testament reading for today where we saw Moses coming down from the mountain, right? And he's shown a similar radiance after being in the presence of God. Here, Jesus is revealed in, his, in the fullness of his divinity and his humanity. We call these places thin places where heaven and earth come together. They come close to one another. And we have lots of songs and hymns in our tradition that sing of this good news of the transfiguration. Christ whose glory fills the skies. Christ the true and only light. O worship the King all glorious above and gratefully sing of his power and his love. And if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you might remember this gem. As we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your light likeness. Ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may our, may our lives tell your story. Does anyone know? Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Finally, the Jesus of the transfiguration has arrived. And this is the Jesus we want, right? Look at how Peter reacts to this whole scene. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Have you all ever seen those it's happening memes uh, that get circulated around? I picture Peter here is in one of those it's happening memes. It's finally happening. Jesus is going through this transformation that we've all been waiting for. And Peter wanted to bottle it all up and save this moment forever. He wanted to set up these tents so that the glory and radiance of God would stay and remain for a while. I was thinking about this moment for Peter this week as I was reflecting on these awful, awful events that are unfolding in the Ukraine right now. This terrible loss of life, the forced migration of hundreds of thousands of people, the destruction, the uncertainty, and the fear that has come about. And I can't help but think that I, think that I would love to be Peter in this moment on the mountain, what I would give for a transfigured Jesus to show up right now 
and radiate his glory in some of these dark places in the world in Ukraine right now. Lord, would you show up and reveal your glory in these spaces where people are suffering? On this last Sunday of Epiphany, as we celebrate this transfiguration story, we all cry out that Jesus would come and reveal himself to those who live in fear and danger right now. That Jesus would reveal himself to those who are weary and tired and anxious. Of course, we know that even though we are coming to this, the end of this season of Epiphany, there is still so much more to be revealed about Jesus, right? It's not like the transfiguration covers everything. Just before and after this story in the transfiguration, uh, in this chapter in Luke, Jesus hints at an event that's going to happen in the future on another mountain. Jesus foretells his death on the cross twice just before and just after this transfiguration story. And so this transfigured Jesus on the mountaintop is not only the culmination of our epiphany journey, but it is also uh, the culmination, or it is the threshold by which we stand uh, looking ahead into this new Lenten season. Sorry, I got, I got uh, my pages, pages got switched around real quick. <laughs> At the heart of this transfiguration story, in the midst of the radiance and the glory on the mountaintop is a conversation that's posed in between these, these two uh, stories that we hear Jesus talking about, predicting the death on the cross. And this conversation that happens on the mountaintop is a conversation that he has with Moses and Elijah. And what do they talk about? What is the conversation about? It's about his departure. It's about the things that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. You see, just after this story takes place, later in this chapter in Luke, Jesus, it says, sets his face towards Jerusalem, towards his departure. Or as other translations call it, his exodus. Just as Moses led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt through the Red Sea and into freedom, Jesus would lead his own exodus to bring salvation to the world. How incredible would it have been to be, have an ear in on that conversation with Jesus and Moses and Elijah? It reminds me of a scene from Harry Potter. I don't know if y'all are cool with Harry Potter or not. But there's this incredible scene at the, towards the end of the books, towards the end of the story, uh, and I, I promise I won't reveal any major spoilers, but at the, towards the end of these books, Harry is about to, to, to face, in this kind of climax of the story, his main adversary, his main foe, Voldemort. But before he goes, he opens up this magic stone called the Resurrection Stone. And when he does, all of these people from his life who have passed away are suddenly transfigured before him. And he has a conversation with them about his own departure as he heads to face Voldemort. And his transfigured companions offer Harry encouragement and support and presence in that moment. He asks them to stay with him. I wonder if some of this conversation that Jesus had on, with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop had to do with encouraging him for the work that was to come. And on that mountaintop, in the midst of the bedazzlement and the radiance and the glory, 
and the splendor of the transfiguration, we actually encounter a different kind of glory as Jesus speaks to Moses and Elijah. We encounter the glory of his departure, the glory of his exodus, the glory of the cross. The transfiguration stands at this pivotal moment in our liturgical story as it points us both backwards to Christmas, to the good news of the incarnation of Jesus, that God came into this world, the Son of God, both fully God and fully man. And the transfiguration also points us ahead to the good news of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And so today, in the midst of a world where glory and power have become disfigured and abused. And we see this playing itself out in, Ukra- in the Ukraine right now and in all sorts of spaces in our world. In the midst of this, in, where glory and power have been disfigured, we proclaim the good news that on the mountaintop, Jesus transfigures our own understanding of glory and power and reveals that true glory and true power is found not only in the journey to the mount of transfiguration, but also to the journey, in the journey to the cross. For God so loved the world. This good news is precisely why Peter's involvement in this story is so important. I think we can all imagine ourselves in Peter's shoes here. In verse 33, after Peter tries to convince Jesus to let him build the tents, as we heard earlier, the, the gospel writer Luke has this really interesting phrase. He makes, it's almost like a, a comment he makes uh, about Peter's reaction. The NIV translates it this way. He says, it, he did not know what he was saying. Peter didn't get it. Peter wanted to build the tents and capture all this glory and everything. And Luke is telling us he didn't get it. He was still thinking in terms of capturing and hoarding this glory for himself up on that mountaintop. We see this later in the same chapter when the disciples begin arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. And Jesus' response is simple, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Peter does not yet understand that Jesus, in the words of Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And this is why Jesus is exalted and glorified. Do you see it? For Jesus, it was never about staying on top of the mountain and living in transfigured glory and radiance. It was about his departure. It was about his deep and abiding love for the world that he wanted to redeem and restore. And so he set his face towards Jerusalem to to accomplish this exodus mission. And even on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is where his mind is at. And just as we have witnessed the glory of this moment, of this transfiguration moment, we'll actually see it again. On another mountain, on a darker day, on the other side of Lent, we will yet see this glory revealed to the world on the cross. Friends, as we all turn our own faces towards Jerusalem as we stand at this threshold of Lent. We're we're beginning Lent this week. My prayer for all of us is that Jesus would transfigure our own misconceptions and misunderstandings of power and glory in the world. 
How much are we like Peter, wanting glory for ourselves, wanting to hoard and keep it in one place and not share it? Or how much are we like the disciples who are walking with Jesus and arguing amongst themselves about which of them is the greatest? How can we transform our attitude and posture towards power and influence to be more like Jesus, who is laser-focused on his departure? Paul gets after this in our New Testament reading today as he's dealing with a Corinthian church that seems obsessed with power and influence. The Corinthian church was a church with many gifts, but they were easily influenced and divided by these charismatic and influential leaders in their midst. Underneath it all in the Corinthian church was this disfigurement of power and influence. And Paul calls this out in chapter 13, which we heard earlier. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Paul could have easily said, if I have all the power and the influence and the glory in the world, but have not love, I have nothing. The beating center of our life with God in the world is defined by this capacity and willingness to love. We say these words every single week at the beginning of our liturgy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Glory and power in the kingdom of God are always, always, always set in the context of this command to love. For God so loved the world. And as we think about the ways in which we, you and I, wield power and influence in our lives, we're not the president, we're not, we don't, none of us have like, you know, uh, power in the same way that some people do, but we all hold and wield power and influence in different ways in our life, in our relationships with one, with one another, in our families, with our friendships. We all have and we hold power and influence and I actually think 1 Corinthians 13 can actually function like, like a filter almost to assess how we're doing with, with power and influence. Think about the ways in which in your life you might hold power and influence over the people around you, in your family, with friendships, in your workplace, wherever it might be. Think about it and then let's read the, the words of 1 Corinthians 4 through 7 and just pay attention to how much power and influence is actually in this, in this text. It says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How does this, how are we doing with this? As we think about the power and the influence that we have in our lives. How are we doing with this? If you're like me, you hear these words from Paul and realize that you got some work to do. I know I have work to do here. This is why I love Lent. I welcome it every single year because there is always growth, right? None of us has attained perfection. We all have room to grow 
We all have room to pursue Jesus and be transformed by his likeness. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is talking about the work that he has to do that is before him in Jerusalem. What work do you have in your life right now? What's the work before you? What needs to be tended as you think about power and glory and influence and as you have this vision of the Mount of Transfiguration, this glory revealed there, and as, you, as we think ahead to Lent, as we think ahead to the cross and the glory that was revealed there, how do we need to be transformed in the ways that we wield power and influence in our lives by the love of God? Let's take a moment and allow the Spirit to speak as we reflect on the question. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.